Today's op- call to worship and opening words come from Adlai Stevenson, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. We travel together, passengers, on this little spaceship, dependent upon its vulnerable reserves of air and soil, all committed for our safety to its security and peace, preserved from annihilation only by the care, the work, and, I will say, the love we have for our fragile craft. We cannot maintain it half-fortunate, half-miserable, half-confident, half-despairing, half-slave to the ancient enemies of man, half-free in liberation of resources undreamed of until this day. No craft, no crew can travel safely with such vast contradictions. On their resolution depends the survival of us all. A village was built around the commons. The commons was common ground, which belonged to everyone in the village. All the villagers could bring their sheep to the commons to graze. But there was a problem. A villager who owned many sheep used more of the commons than a villager who owned a few sheep, or one sheep, or none at all. And because the common grass was free, people put as many sheep to graze there as they could. Soon, there were too many sheep. There was not enough grass for all of them. This was not good for the villagers for, or the sheep or, or the commons. It was a very bad situation. Sorry. So the people did one of two things. Some people stayed in the village, but they made a plan together. They agreed to keep the commons lush and green to, and to do a better job of sharing it. Each person could only put one sheep on the commons. Everyone had to follow this rule. Other people chose to move away. There was always someplace else to go. Today, the world is much like that village. Now our commons are our parks, reserves, and natural resources, and the waters of the, of air of the whole, and air of the whole world. Today, we have almost the same problem that the villagers had. Today, each fisherman tries to catch as many fish as he can from the common sea. This way, the fisherman has more fish to sell in the short run, but soon there are fewer and fewer fish. This is not good for the fish, for the sea, or for the people. Today, each lumber company wants to cut down as many trees as it can to sell for wood, paper, and fuel. The more trees the lumber company cuts down, the more money it makes in the short run. But after cutting down so many trees, there are fewer and fewer forests. This is not good for the trees or the forest creatures or the forest soil. We use our common oil, gas, and coal to heat our homes and run our cars. Companies use them to make plastics and other chemicals. In this way, we can stay warm, travel long distances, and visit stores full of amazing things to buy in the short run. But someday, these fossil fuels will be used up. We all need water for drinking, cooking, and washing. Farms need water for their crops and livestock. And businesses need water to cool equipment and clean up wastes. So we pump as much of of our common water as we can. This works pretty well in the short run. 
But over time, the wells run dry, and the wastes pollute the water. There is not enough clean water for all the people, the farms, and the business. Fresh water, fossil fuels, forests, fish, one by one, we are destroying the natural resources that sustain our lives. So then, here's our common question. If our country, our companies, and each one of us benefit more in the short run from using as many natural resources as we can, then what will stop us from consuming the whole world, our common ground? We need to answer this question together. Because today, we are different from those long-ago villagers in one very important way. Now, we don't have any place else to go. Thank you all for coming here this morning. My name is Mark Petriquin. I've been a member here since 2014. My preferred pronouns are he, his, him, that guy, and his royal dudeness. <laughs> 90s kid. Today's reading comes from Rachel Carson, essay on Biological Sciences. If we have been slow to develop the general concepts of ecology and conservation, we have been even more tardy in recognizing the facts of the ecology and conservation of man himself. We may hope that this will be the next major phase in the development of biology. Here and there, awareness is growing that man, far from being the overlord of all creation, is himself a part of nature, subject to the same cosmic forces that control all other life. Man's future welfare, and probably even his survival, depend upon his learning to live in harmony rather than in combat with these forces. Fellow members and honored guests, what does home mean to you? The very concept of home. Any? Security. Mm -hmm. Of course. Comfort. Naturally. We like to think of this community as a home for the religious spirit. But what makes it a home? To me, the home is a place where a spirit can feel at ease, emboldened by faith, galvanized by courage, and nurtured by fellow spirits in this journey across the universe. A home requires more than a building, and a found, than, than a building, but the collective commitment of all who share it. This definition is similar to that of the literal home each of us dwells in. No house can be a home unto itself. More than simple structure and foundation, Home is where the individual can truly feel at peace, knowing their bare necessities of food, water, shelter, security, purpose, comfort, and social connection are perpetually readily available. But even a private residence requires far more than just the continuous upkeep of its immediate inhabitants. Naturally, it requires the essential utilities of food, water, electricity, sanitation, and the like to function. Spiritually, it also requires the perpetual commitment of the surrounding community to nurture and provide the inhabitants the opportunity to integrate and find their purpose in life's journey, and also learn how they can sustain themselves and the next generation. Taking a broader view, we as Americans remember how fortunate we are to call our country home in a time where 780 million people lack access to clean, potable water. 
35% of the world's population lacks access to clean sanitation and 12% suffer from malnutrition. Our very birth in this era and place, giving us the inherent right to call this country home, cannot be taken for granted. Taking an even broader view, we realize how fortunate our very human existence in the, is in this vast and nurturing abyss. Amongst the countless planets surrounding the hundreds of billions of stars in just one of hundreds of thousands of known galaxies, ours alone is the only one current known to currently host life. How else can you describe our very existence, let alone the vast abundance and diversity of life on this precious geoid we call home, other than a miracle? Today, we see how precious that concept of home is. As political or alarmist as I may sound, today I'm compelled to speak to you, my fellow inhabitants of this home, not as a scientist, an environmentalist, an American, or even as a Unitarian Universalist, but as a single member of a species concerned for its survival. This year, the United Nations reported that over 70 million people are currently displaced as refugees, the largest number since World War II, without a permanent place to call home or a certain future to hope for. <coughs> Already, this crisis is impacting much of Eastern Europe and North Africa, but fueling a rise in both anti-immigrant rhetoric and unabashed nationalism, all under the guise of protecting a personalized concept of home. Right here in America, Thousands of refugees have appeared at our southern border, unable to return to a place no longer safe or habitable. And similarly, we justify separating migrant families and housing them in squalid conditions as necessary for the protection of our own nation, home nation. But even more disturbing is the future world this current crisis predicates. At the dawn of humanity, our species inhabited what could hardly be called a biblical Eden, the metaphorical paradise we were exiled from because of our supposed hunger for knowledge. Rather, we eked out survival by devoting much of our daily efforts just to find food, shelter, and community, all while slowly engineering the foundations of technology that would improve and prolong our lives and eventually give us the modern standards of our civilization. But the further we moved, from our natural home of Eden, the greater the toll we took on it. As cliched as it sounds, for good reason, we now face an unprecedented threat to our home, not from some foreign power or migrant surge, but centuries of actions we have all taken in our collective pursuit of this modernization. With unprecedented levels of carbon in our atmosphere, plastics in our oceans, toxins in our food and water supplies, deforestation of biodiversity centers, and animal species being wiped out, we now risk permanently shifting the natural evolutionary course of our home planet. Perhaps most, the most striking aspect of this shift is the speed at which it has accumulated. In just the past 500 years, we've altered the very life support systems on this home planet more tremendously, more incredibly than the last 65 million years, all to maintain the, the artificial standard of the anthropomorphic Eden we've now created for ourselves. 
These current standards of convenience have come at an unavoidable cost to the larger home that we seemingly have forgotten about, as though the mere localized concept of home is somehow exclusive from the global definition of it. But no home can exist in isolation, as we all take a toll on our planet's resource to survive. Any home will crumble without the bare necessities, leaving its former inhabitants to either perish or adapt. In trying to build our current utopian home without balancing the greater home, we sacrifice our future world. Humanity wasn't exiled from Eden. We simply tried to conquer it. Nationally, we Americans now face a new refugee crisis, that of our own citizens. Already in Alaska's Aleutian Islands, Louisiana's Gulf Coast, and Tangiers Island right here in the Chesapeake Bay, Families are threatened by rising sea levels and being forced to abandon their homes with no prospect of returning, one of numerous effects of climate change. Elsewhere in our country, in our, our southern and eastern coastlines, citizens face the risk of more devastating hurricanes and tropical storms. Throughout the western U.S., citizens face the devastation of more frequent and rampant forest fires every year. Even throughout the heartland breadbasket of our nation, more intense and longer drought seasons threaten our very food supplies. Now the UN, our own national research institutions, and the Department of Defense have concluded these effects are not only human-caused, but will only intensify with time, not over the course of the next century, but the next few decades. The question is no longer if, but when and how much. And when these American refugees move to safer land, how will we meet them? Most unnerving about this crisis is its ubiquitous source. The numerous threats to our home from climate change, plastic pollution, and countless toxins contaminating our hydrosphere were not caused by a single corporate entity, the policies of elected officials, or even the indifference of those who continue to deny that such threats even exist or are human-caused, but the collective actions and inaction of hundreds of billions of humans worldwide for the past three centuries. Every ounce of fossil fuel burned, every pound of refrigerant released, every wasteful food choice made, and every piece of plastic waste discarded perpetually contributes to this global threat. Worse, because of the ubiquitous responsibility the situation has reached such a proportion, it seems we can't even motivate anyone to take action without instilling in them a sense of shameful conviction, a sentiment which, I have to stress, is antithetical to what I, especially as a Unitarian Universalist, believe. Although one could easily attribute this, the bulk of this source to fully developed nations like the U.S., which alone adds only 5% of the world's population, consumes a third of its resources and generates nearly half of its waste. Such trends of consumerism are already emerging in third world countries across Africa and Southeast Asia, amplified by growing populations and living standards. But if every human on this planet lived like the average American, how many more Earth-like planets would we need to sustain us all? Anyone? Three to five. We're lucky to have this one. How do we humans even begin to address a threat 
that is apparently an unavoidable cost of our very nature. The irony that our own pursuit of a modern Eden seemingly must come at the sacrifice of the natural Eden we inhabit is only matched by the irony of our perception of its prior inhabitants. We perceive species that required an anthropomorphic or cataclysmic climate change to face extinction as inferior to our own that seemingly wholeheartedly that wholeheartedly seems to orchestrate its own demise. Even today, the countless species that currently inhabit our fragile world, we consider our, we consider our own among them the only species seemingly incapable of preserving its own livelihood as the only form of intelligent life. Now, I must clarify my aversion to depicting any future apocalyptic scenario that forecasts the end of our planetary home. From a purely scientific standpoint, we know that in spite of whatever environmental impacts Earth suffers from our relatively brief time on it, the planet will ultimately survive, just as it has through seven mass extinctions prior to humans. However many millennia it takes, its climate will eventually return to a more balanced state. Its natural resources will replenish. And its surviving inhabitants will evolve and adapt once again to thrive in harmony with that new Eden. But how long will we humans survive this shift from our own impact? For countless generations, we have squandered future savings for the quality of the present, crumbled in panic at the announcement of short-term immediate threats, and often ignored or disregard the long-term costs of immediate brief gratification. How will we miraculously adapt to the current consequences of and dramatically shift our natural avarice to living in a fit, to living in balanced harmony with our home. If we cannot even survive our own impact, inevitably we must face the existential question, are we humans worthy of inheriting this home? As a Unitarian Universalist, my respect for the interconnected web of life, of which we are all a part, forbids me from discounting the inherent worth of any form of life, including my own species. But I cannot ignore the scientific amalgams of our own behavior, ignore the, the destructive amalgams of our own behavior. Now we stand at a crossroads, not between current and future environments, but how much time and quality of which we want to invest in each. Even if we can delay future extinction for or a paltry number of generations, what kind of a home would we be bequeathing them? As much faith as we invest in our ability to adapt, what new standards will future generations be willing to accept just to survive? A home plagued by extreme weather, sporadically available food supplies, polluted air and water, and constant global migration just to survive? And regardless of how much we adapt, how long will we endure? A thousand more years? 10,000? A million? In the cosmic story of this 4.5 billion year old planet, 
What possible meaningful narrative can our own feeble species have as we struggle to rewrite our own? Consider, however, the story we write not just for ourselves, but for this future home. Countless species on Earth have thrived for millions of years longer than our own, and their history has awakened us to the wonders of, that, of our home and augmented our appreciation of it. Every being on this planet that has gone extinct passively laid the foundation for the next species to advance and adapt to our changing home in the eternal harmonious cycle of life. What if we could influence whatever fantastic species follows us, whether through our natural evolutionary path or legacy of divisive sustainab sustainability? Just as the neglectful actions of prior human generations have led us to this crisis, so too can our current generation devote, our, devote itself to a habit of conscious sustainability that integrates not only our global population, but every generation that follows. Our species has the unique gift of predicting the future for a reason. No matter how apocalyptic our future home may appear, our very awareness of it has enabled us to begin the steps to prepare for it. Remember that the original Greek word apocalypse or apocalypsis doesn't mean the end of the world, but the revealing of it. How can we describe our, the natural evolution and resilience of life itself in spite of countless mass extinctions and global crises as anything other than divine? And just as every daily action can detract from our future home, it can just as easily protect and replenish it. Every watt of electricity or ounce of fossil fuel we save, every drop of water we conserve, every piece of trash we recycle, every, and every sustainable food choice we make has a ripple effect on both ourselves and the greater community as we fundamentally shift the habitual nature of our species and our own cognitive evolutionary adaption to our perpetually changing home. Any financial advisor stresses the importance of investing in real estate. And what real estate could be more important than a home for the next generation? Paradoxically, acknowledging the temporal nature of our species can incentivize us to take action and, and devote our, and take, incentivize to take action to shift the course of our history. This desire to, uh, to defy our own perception of doom and devote our, our limited time to combat it will not come from just our action or faith, but the harmonious dance between the two. Consider and compare this to the microcosm of our own limited personal existence. Each of us is mortal, and our own time on this planet is dwarfed by that of our species, let alone the larger biosphere of Earth's occupants. We can delay death as best we act through diet, exercise, and social involvement, but ultimately we must all pay the biological price demanded upon every living thing. Does this inevitable fate justify anything less than the vigorous tenacity to protect and prolong both our own and each other's lives and the home that sustains them?
even if we were suddenly diagnosed with some fatal disease caused by our own past mistakes, would we still not want to be remembered more for how we applied our life rather than the mere toll it took on us? Moreover, does not every action we take to improve our health and our home help facilitate that same instinctive habit in the following generation, whether related by blood, spirit, shared vision, or evolution? Is this not the very definition of survival? Going further, what if we also broadened our perspective of community? If a family member was a refugee fleeing their homeland and criminalized by a country they sought asylum in, who here would try to help them? An immediate family member. What if they were a non-immediate family member? Or a neighbor? Or just a member of the same town, state, or country? At what point do we allow the contrived distances of nationality sever the inherent bonds of humanity? In a world with ever-dwindling resources and time to sustain us pushes us closer together, we cannot let the arbitrary circumstances of birthplace tear us apart. If you retain one message from me today, remember this. We can live in harmony with our home. We have the technology for clean, renewable sources to sustain all our energy needs, prevent projected greenhouse gas emissions, begin reclaiming the vast amounts of waste polluting our waterways, and provide fresh food and water for all 9 billion people ex projected to occupy this planet by 2050. And even when our story ends, it can tell whatever species follows us, we were worthy of inhabiting this home and how they can be as well. What we need is the will to act on our principles to save our species and our home, and the faith that every action we take towards a stable future will guide that shift in our evolutionary legacy. We can no longer neglect the inherent worth, dignity, and livelihood of future generations any more than we can that of migrant refugees in our current one. Indeed, as we all occupy this planetary home, we all share its future and the inherent right to inhabit as we co-write that story together. To me, this is the true Eden, finding that balance between fulfilling present and future necessities for both ourselves and other members of the interconnected web of life on this precious geoid we call home. No longer will we be the conquerors of Eden, but stewards of it in a synergistic rhythm that enables us to thrive congruently with our home rather than against it. And no matter how dire the circumstance of our perceived future home or how long our species can last, the sheer possibility that we can fundamentally contribute towards a sustainable Eden for whoever inhabits it next warrants our ongoing commitment. There is no manifest destiny except the one we craft each moment. Regardless of past neglect or future conditions or predications, so long as we draw breath in this world, we can prove our worth in occupying it. Just as every living thing 
is a divine expression of God interacting with this universe, so too are we all part of that natural Eden that we can find and preserve here and now. And our story is not over yet. Amen. Shalom. Alhamdulillah. Namaste. Blessed be.